Hello, I'm Richard Lee. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. You can find out how they can help you build your own website at squarespace.com. The Guardian. So you go in through the door, and as you move through the building, you see it open above you into something which means that the top of your head opens at the same time as the building going up and up and up into space, into a possibility larger than the self, you know, from this point upwards. This week's Guardian Books podcast comes to you from a place of refuge, a space of exploration and possibility, the home of unknown friends, the library. This same book in a stranger's hands, half known, those readers, kindred spirits, almost friends. Saturday the 6th of February is National Libraries Day. So this week we're exploring and celebrating the world of the book repository. Tom Holland, historian and chair of the body that administers royalty payments to authors from library loans, tells us why the latest lending figures are a reason for optimism. That is, when Claire's not pointing out his own uh, absence from lending top 100. You're not featured. <laughs> You're not no, very borrowed, are you? No, but I think that maybe because I'm not writing about American crime or fairies or monsters or anything like that. Fortunately, he has advice for us all. If you want to have a really highly borrowed book, write a thriller. We'll also hear from Jackie Kay with some extracts from her poem Dear Library, a tribute to Scotland's distinguished and life-changing lending tradition. The wild world was at the tip of my fingers in my local library. And we visit Jungle Books, a library set up by volunteers in the Calais refugee camp known as The Jungle. Founder Mary Jones took our producer, Susanna Tresillian, on a tour to see which books are most in demand in the most demanding of circumstances. On the wall of the library was a poem. The librarian and poet Nakib read it out. Life's story is like shirt buttons. Life's story is like shirt buttons. If you do up the first button in the wrong hole, you will do up all the buttons wrong. You will do up all the buttons wrong. Adversity is in this. When you reach the end, you will know that it is wrong. You will know that is wrong. Who wrote that? Me, by writing librarian. I'm librarian. And you learned English three months ago? Yes, three months. About three months, yes. Why did you write this? Uh, yes, but life is like this. You can see a picture of Nakib's poem on our website, but we start with a Costa-winning writer, Ali Smith. A chance encounter with a decommissioned library was the beginning of her journey towards her latest collection of short fiction, Public Library and Other Stories. She joined Claire in the studio to talk about why libraries are such an important part of her life. She began by reading from her prologue, Public Library. Here's a true story. Simon, my editor, and I had been meeting to talk about how to put together this book you're reading right now. We set off on a short walk across central London to his office to photocopy some stories I'd brought with me. Just off Covent Garden, we saw a building with the word library above its doors. It didn't look like a library. It looked like a fancy shop. What do you think it is? Simon said. Let's see, I said. We crossed the road and went in. Inside, everything was painted black. There was a little vestibule and in it a woman was standing behind a high reception desk. She smiled a hello. Further in, straight ahead of us, I could just glimpse some people sitting at a table and we could hear from behind a thin partition wall the sounds of people drinking and talking. Hello, we said. Is this a library? The woman lost her smile. No, she said. A man came through from behind the partition. Hello, he said. Can I help at all? We saw the word library, Simon said. Was this a library once, I said. She's a writer, Simon said, by way of explaining. He's an editor, I said. We're a private members club, the man said. We also have a select number of hotel rooms. I picked up a glossy leaflet from a pile on the desk about some kind of food promotion or a taster deal. Simon picked up a card. Have you actually got actual books? I said. We do do some books as a feature, 
Please help yourself to a card, the man said, a bit pointedly, since we already had. Later, when I got home, I unfolded the advert I'd taken, which was for a company working with Library to produce three-course meals, which allowed diners to relive your favourite musicals, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Phantom of the Opera, Les Miserables, Matilda. I typed in the Library website address off the advert. When it came up, I noticed, for the first time, that a central part of the textual design of the use of the word library was the thin line drawn through the middle of it. This is what scored out library listed next to the photographs of its five luxurious individually designed air-conditioned rooms with many modern amenities and comfortable beds, terrace bar, 24-hour concierge, ground floor lounge with stage and bar, massage and beauty treatment room, kitchen with chef's table, brackets April 2015, close brackets, private dining and boardroom with conferencing, double mezzanine with bridge, smoking terrace, access to rare library books. Simon pocketed the card. I folded the advert about the food promotion into my inside pocket. Thanks very much, we said. Then we left. We crossed the road and stopped on the pavement opposite where we'd first seen the word above the door. We looked back at it. Simon shrugged. Library, he said. Now we know, I said. That is the introductory section to what becomes a collection of 12 short stories with lots of, of non-fiction bits in between, particularly involving the friends that you ask for their anecdotes of their experiences of libraries. What made you come up with this structure? Well, actually, making that walk across from where we had our lunch, you know, and passing this building where we where we saw the word scored out, library, and, and finding out the shift between public library and private members club was right on our doorstep, absolutely in the, the environ. It's, it's true, we just sat down. I had a couple of, maybe I had a, a kind of sheaf of short stories with me. And I said to Simon, well, they're all about writers and books. There's something about our bookish nature um, and the ways in which we are made by books in this book. And then we passed this building and then the shift from public to private happened before our eyes. And then he started to talk to me about his local library, which is Kensal Rise Library, which was opened, you know, by Mark Twain a hundred years before, you know, it was bought by a private company when the council sold it off. And the local people fought like anything to hold on to it and have managed one way or another to hold on to at least the, the soul of it, the idea of it as it's being redeveloped into homes. Anyway, so then the conversation just as I was working on putting together this book, it got wider and wider and I began to ask everybody I met, you know, friends and people who just came to readings or people I met at the bus stop, whoever, what they thought about libraries and the overwhelming affection and a kind of, what should we say, nostalgia, which isn't just nostalgia, it's about what we're made of. It was about, it's about the present. It was a kind of nostalgia for where we have come from and where we will go. And at the same time, a, an awareness of the danger of what it will mean to lose those things came out with almost everybody I spoke In fact, it, there wasn't anybody I spoke to who didn't have a, a library story about the way that they had been made by, by reading at the library. You make, library. Then you make the point that it took you a couple of months to get all these mm. opinions and marshal them, and during that period, 23 libraries had shut. Oh, 27. 27 yeah, libraries 27. had shut. It was, it was literally, I mean, I put together the stories I'd been writing over the past seven or eight years, and as I went through them and kind of combed them, kind of fine-tuned them, and then um, sat them beside each other to see how they went, 27 libraries shut, and that took about five weeks, six weeks. I've read the piece you mm. you just read out many times, and just hearing you read it now, I've realised that the key line in it is access to rare library books. Access which is to rare library complete books. Complete contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing. There's, I mean, yeah, in in the private members club, library books are rare. That's <laughs> that's what that says, really, and it's simply a, an underlining of that shift between what we as a public. It knows not just our, you know our legacy, but it's actually our right, you know. And at the same time, the ways in which the rhetoric, the politics, the shift of what community means has really changed, and that we need our ears open to it, you know. Just the passing of the thing on the street, the looking at the word, and then realizing the word had been scored through. And if we go into the stories themselves, mm. they're, they're sort of full of things you've learnt from libraries, haven't they? They're, they're full mm. of anecdotes and bits of research and fascinating facts that you've sort of obviously picked up in quite a sort of voracious way through many years. We are sponges, you know, and what we read 
goes directly into us and comes right through us. It goes into our skin and comes back out of our skin, having gone right around our system and acted like nourishment. And by which I mean every single thing we read, from uh, books to the sides of you know buses and to things on pencils, written on pencils. Every piece of language that goes into us does something, because language is... We are very, very sensitive to language and, and it, it works kind of with us, it, it remakes us. Therefore, the loss of uh, or the threat of the loss of and the continual wearing away of this particular tradition of an access to the world's literatures, uh, which is nothing to do with money and is absolutely to do with a democratic space where every one of us should be able to, has a right to be able to go and pick up any one of the books that the library holds. And the library should efficiently hold all of them, <laughs> you know, that, that's what that's what libraries, that's what a library is. It's about how we are made and what and how we, how we, how we survive. Actually, uh, knowing the many things that language can do. So therefore, our, our sensitivity to books is kind of obvious to me. And sure enough, I, I know I'm, I'm like those illustrations of people who who you know who are made of books, it's, and we all are if we just took a look at ourselves. It's particularly clear in a couple of the stories, and one of them that I love is The Human Claim, mm. which is about D.H. Lawrence, only it's not about D.H. Lawrence. Tell us about The Human Claim. OK, The Human Claim is a story about the ashes of D.H. Lawrence, and it comes from the fact that on the way home on the train I was reading a book which suggested that uh, Lawrence, after his death and after his cremation, and when his uh, wife Frida had married someone else and was missing Lawrence, had asked her new husband to go and pick up his ashes from where she'd left them in Vence in south of France. This fantastic book by John Worthen, one of the books about D.H. Lawrence, uh, suggested that Frida's husband had gone and got the ashes and that he'd brought them back to Frida and that Frida had buried them in this great, beautiful ceremonial tomb next to which, in a, kind of in which she was buried herself and, and there she was with Lawrence and <laughs> after she died... Uh, her husband, Ravalli, announced that he'd thrown away D.H. Lawrence's ashes. He said, I threw away the D.H. cinders, he said. And this notion was, I was just kind of amazed by it. I was coming home on the train amazed by it. I arrived in, this is an autobiographical story, obviously. I arrived in the front door and opened a letter which told me I'd been scammed on my credit card. And I was looking at it thinking... I've been scammed and the back of it there's this notion of Lawrence's ashes and the notion of the, the scamming of what it means to have any remains at all out of which I think probably in a very Laurentian way my story just grew from the ashes So then there's a mm. huge correspondence between you and the bank about the fact that somebody's travelled by Lufthansa on your card you've never made the journey the, the, you know the, nothing doesn't connect uh, somewhere at the back of the story there was the question of being defrauded somewhere at the back of the story there was the joy people take in defrauding other people and there was the well I, I also remember uh, once when I was uh, much younger uh, being robbed by a very small child uh, who, I was sitting at a table in Greece and uh, the child kind of sidled up beside me and said hello and then uh, you know half an hour later I realised that she'd taken all the money out of my pocket and I hadn't felt a thing and she just stood there and told me her name you know anyway there was something kind of glorious about being robbed quite so gorgeously by someone so brilliant at what she did that I hadn't noticed, hadn't felt a thing. And yet there was something so anonymous about this new way of being robbed, the, the scamming and fishing that people do all the time. And there was and something about it just made me think of Lawrence and made me think of his fury and made me think of his, the kind of gorgeous energy of his fury, which again brings you back to this sense of how Lawrence, who we think is, you know, held in his remains in this grave somewhere in New Mexico, actually he's everywhere. And there's the sense of the, what should we say, the, the, the dissolving of Lawrence into the air. It's like a kind of gorgeous leaving behind of identity. You know, the gorgeous way to not have identity rather than the, you know, the awful way to have your identity taken from you. And there's, there was a kind of a handshake between these two things. And again, I was thanking Lawrence for having a, a forward knowledge which is what books have. All books have an understanding which returns us to ourselves via the past and to some extent towards the future. You know, because the, the books are, a, you know, they come from their time in a way which allows us to understand time. So there was this foreseeing in even the things which had happened to the body of this writer, which is not to forget too that books themselves are organic. They're organic things. They're organic objects. All those books bound in leather originally, each one took a calve to make so that 250 copies of uh, library books you know rare library books ancient library books old library books bound in calves makes 250 cows you know and all books come from trees as well so there's this constant back and forth between us as human beings and the object of the book which is we're, we're the same we're made of the same stuff 
In another of the stories, um, the definite article, you mm. talk about you're in Regent's Park and you talk about the ghosts of literature that wander around Regent's Park. Mm. Uh, Regent's Park is a very written about park. It's got a, a really, I think, a beautiful history of having been private and then becoming public, being given to all the peoples of the city and of the world to come, this is a come very, to the city. It's a very grand London park, it's North London Park. grand lo- North London Park, which... Um, came through the convents and then the the ownership of royalty and then was given to the people of the city. And so much writing about this place, so much inspiration. On the edge of it, you've got Plath and Hughes. At the centre of it, you've got Dickens, you've got Shaw, you've got Dodie Smith, you've got um, Elizabeth Bowen, you've got Henry James, you've got Samuel Johnson, who's standing in the middle of the park annoyed because he came to see a firework display and it's raining and he can't see it. You've got this constant reference back to the environment the public environment, the environment in which we all cross over in all our languages and all ourselves and all our nationalities meet in this open position, this open place. It's an open literary celebration of a place, Regent's Park. And I found out that by going to the library and finding a book which had been uh, put together by a man who simply loved the park, loved the celebration in all the writings and put them together. So the story arises from the way in which such an open space is peopled, but not ghostly. It holds its history openly, and we come into that history and go out of it with exactly the same freedom. So part of what the project of this book is, is the mapping of literary experience onto real experience and vice versa, isn't it? In another story, you have somebody who's discussing Wilfred Owen with her. Is it her? I, mm. You can never be quite sure of the genders of, of characters in your, in your books. And, you. and suddenly, Boy George appears. <laughs> <laughs> so she's sort of mapping Boy George onto Wilfred Owen. We, well, there isn't any mapping, really. We exist variously at all points. And we exist variously as people at all points. It's, it's nice of you to notice the thing about gender. I like to leave gender open so that people can come to a story and not feel like it precludes them. Um, at least I think that's what I'm doing. I hope so. Um, but we live in worlds which are layered and various. And and for those of us living now in time rather than then in time, Boy George and Wilfred Owen do both exist. And they both exist in a way which connects unusually through Dulcet Decorum Est and War is Stupid. You know, it, the connections are endless. Yeah. If we look for the connections, they're endless. They're, that's, it's how the synapses work. And another whole area of this is is a fascination with words. Mm. Will you just read us a little bit um, about a particular collection of words that I particularly love? Uh, This is from a story called Last, which is actually about the word last. Uh, Last is a gorgeous word. Look at it. It's almost nothing of a word. It's It's a monosyllable, and it means everything from the end, the last one, to how to survive, how to last. And the, last it out. and the actual story is about a woman, again, I think, who sees uh, somebody getting stuck in a train. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, there's, so, there's a, so there's a person who's been shunted off into a sidings on a train and uh, the person in the story sees this happen and doesn't quite know what to do about it. So it's kind of ambles towards the train um, while ambling, thinks about what words mean. And this is, a, this is a little bit from the story. I mean, take a rich fool word like buxom which was a word I knew the history of since at another point in my life, in what felt like a life centuries earlier than this one now, I had liked words immensely and thought a lot about using them and about how they were used. At the beginning of its history, buxom meant obedient, compliant, gracious. Then later in time it meant blithe and lively. Then a bit later still it started to mean overweight, because larger people are traditionally seen as blithe and cheery, Then it stopped being about both men and women and became only about women in a revealing fusion of compliant, obedient, merry and big-breasted. Or the word aloof, which was a shipping term, came from luff, the word for the command to distance your boat from something too dangerously close to it. Or the word clue, too, which came from the word for a ball of thread and the coinage of which was probably something to do with the big ball of string Theseus took into the labyrinth with him to mark his way out and defeat the Minotaur. Ariadne got it from Daedalus, the inventor, and she gave it to Theseus, with whom she was in love, and the ball of string saved his life and made him a hero. Then he abandoned her on Naxos Island. She woke on the beach, and she hadn't a clue where he'd gone, till she saw the sails of his ship disappearing over the sea's horizon. Now that's what I call aloof. 
So there's something fascinating going on here, which is about how words wind into stories and stories wind back into words. It's a sort of minor talk process almost, isn't it? Words wind into stories, stories wind into words. There is no separate mapping between, you know, the human being and the, the language and the stories and the words. We're, we can think of it as a maze or we can follow the ball of string and find the history of the word, which will tell us so much about the history of ourselves. And also, you know, when we're using words and we think the history of them doesn't matter, of course it matters. The word's still attached to its history, you know, umbilically. The, the history's still attached to the word. The words carry their histories the same way as we carry our histories, our personal histories, and all the histories of all the people who went to make us and all the people who went to make them. So why would we think for a minute that these things weren't vitally connected? And we carry our histories and we also carry our assumptions. And we did a session at um, the Oxford Literary Festival and fascinating session in which uh, we were talking about one of the stories in which um, somebody turns into a rose bush. Mm. And I had assumed it was a woman. We've mm. talked a little bit about mm. gender and gender's always fluid in your story. And suddenly someone in the audience said, but hang on a minute, it isn't necessarily yeah. and I just I, you know it's sort of one of those really shocking moments when you just think actually we carry our preconceptions that's one of the reasons why we need libraries we need things to challenge us oh I love the world every day I'm shocked out of my preconceptions by something or other you know and if I'm not shocked by out of my preconceptions then I know I'm asleep or I'm not you know properly in the world or I, you know I need to do something to wake myself up a bit I like that about being alive <laughs> that a story is, is interesting everybody assumes that the narrator is female that's fair enough. Because of like. the association of roses and women, because of fairy know. stories, is I, it? I, suppo- I don't know. I suppose so. I suppose, um, the, I, I don't know, for all sorts of reasons that people decide that one thing is one gender and one thing is another. Years and years and years ago, I wrote a story which had two parts, um, one narrated by one person called I, you, me, you know, and the other narrated by another person called you, I, me. Um, and um, people, it was about someone who falls in love with a tree, who who. Lee sees a tree, falls in love, and then decides to move the tree into the house. And you get one half from the perspective of the person in love and one half from the perspective of the person whose house is about to be invaded by, you know, the new lover of the tree. And people choose for all sorts of reasons. People are quite often write to me about that story and say, I've got it right, haven't I? Because the person who's in love with the tree is a woman, isn't it? And the, the person who's, you know, annoyed is a man, isn't it? Or someone else will write and say, no, no, the person who's in love with the, the tree, you know, she goes out and she buys, like, tools so she can dig up the laminate. That's a, that's a, ma- that's, that's a man, not a woman, isn't it? So, you know, so it's, it's, there's, there's a constant shift of gender all the time in that story. And, the, I mean... Oh, like you know, good. I suppose good because um, love stories, you know, are not necessarily gendered, and a, the notion of love and the notion of imagination, well, the imagination is not gendered, and love is not gendered. So, just since this is the theme of this podcast is libraries and mm. it's National Library Day, I'm curious as to what you would be if you hadn't had libraries in your childhood. Tell us a little bit about your own early relationship okay. with libraries. Oh, that's interesting because actually I came to libraries reasonably late compared to a lot of people I spoke to uh, to, to write this book because um, I'm the fifth of five children. By the time I was born, my mother had really had enough of paying library fines, years worth of library fines. So she was very unwilling to let me go to the library. So when I was about 11, I, I, actually I was lucky I'd inherited my older brothers and sisters' books and school books. There weren't that many books in the house actually, but um, the books we had were were their kind of grace of the um, Scottish curriculum, the Scottish education curriculum, which was fantastic, really, really good. Anyway, but about the age of 11, I snuck off to see what the library was in town and I could not believe my eyes. I went in past the librarian, past the desk, books and books and books and books and books. Were there so many books about everything in this one space above Lipton supermarket in the middle of town? And that sense of my own eyes and my own mind opening, and actually my chest opening as well, the heart, the heart actually opened uh, that day when I went in realizing that there were books forever, everything, about everything. The, the sense of opening, the sense of openness. When we launched uh, Public Library, uh, we launched it at the new library built at Canada Water in London. And uh, it's a library which had a very, very small geographical space into which to fit. So the council said, you may fill this very small space. So the designers built a library which looks like an upside down pyramid. So you go in through the door and as you move through the building, you see it open above you into something which means at the top of your head opens at the same time as the building going up and up and up into space into a possibility larger than the self you know from this point upwards it goes the movement is 
to the head, to the intelligence. It's like a kind of grace of intelligence, a gift of intelligence just walking into that building. Oh, that's a, an imaginative way to work with libraries because that's what libraries do for us all the time, public libraries. Ali Smith's Public Library and Other Stories is published by Hamish Hamilton. A couple of weeks ago, Susanna Tresillian took up an invitation to visit Jungle Books, the library for refugees founded by the British teacher Mary Jones at the refugee camp in Calais known as The Jungle. They met up on a wet and windy winter's evening in Centreville before heading over to the camp. Khalistan, the mostly Afghan area where you've got lots of shops and restaurants that people have set up from absolutely nothing and now they're quite flourishing businesses. And then we can just walk through to the library. So this is the original little library. Then here because we started doing lessons in here as well. It was much too small, so we expanded. And now we have like two lessons going on at the same time uh, in this space. And now we've got uh, Wi-Fi, we've got internet, so now it'll be full of uh, people on the computers. This is uh, Mohammed, who's our, who's become a poet since he's been here. We call him Shakespeare because he's the only person in the whole world I know who actually enjoys reading Shakespeare. <laughs> he's got the full works in his tent and the, the sonnets as well. And he just wrote, we borrow the hearts of nomadic birds who don't recognise borders. Both, you know, she just... So. You, want, you want poetry? poetry? English? In which yes. language? In English? Yeah. <clears throat> we have poems in... Persian. Yeah, we've got lots of poems in different oh. languages here. <laughs> <There we go. laughs> Persian, yeah. Yeah. My name is. So, can you describe where we are right now? Well, at the moment we're in the the original library, which is the size of a slightly expanded garden shed, made by the refugees out of wood and plastic and lined inside with uh, very nice curtains from a French chateau that a friend managed to get from a, a yard sale, so that makes it nice and light. Uh, the roof, which nearly blew off, is held down by uh, great big boulders <laughs> and bits of string, so uh, hopefully it's not going to blow off tonight. And uh, just surrounding almost floor to ceiling are some makeshift shelves filled with books, very kindly donated from... Uh, uh, lots of very generous people and also publishers and, and bookshops that have you know, helped us to fill our shelves. Tell me about how this all began and how you came here. It probably began with uh, feelings of uh, total anger and uh, disgust uh, driving past uh, the, the camp and looking down and seeing what's a very, very bad shanty town in the middle of developed country in Europe with people living under black plastic and at the time when I first came here absolutely no running water, no toilets, uh, no electricity and uh, a complete disgrace and just feeling I wanted to do something and thinking well what can I do or maybe teach English so just coming and thinking I'd start just doing a few English lessons and along the way kind of emptied my bookshelves, brought them along to a little space and it just kind of grew from there really, just realised that people were really keen to read and, and in fact just kind of trying to make a little space that's something like a mix between a library and a, a living space where people can just sit down and have five minutes of normality in, a, in a, an environment of total chaos. What do you think the importance of having all of these books around? Why is that important to people here? 
when life is so, as you say, so chaotic? Well, I think it's it's a sticking plaster, but I think it's a sticking plaster that can help people sometimes to escape mentally from a very, very difficult situation, whether that's trying to forget maybe the difficult journey they've spent coming here, whether or not it's just the, the kind of total frustration of being left here, the difficulties of life, and maybe just, yeah, five minutes of of thinking of something completely different, I think is uh, is very important. Sometimes it's it's um, because everyone here are just so keen to learn. They're, they're just sort of enthusiasm to be doing something and that just being frustrated. I think at least by being able to learn a language or improve skills, keep up with sometimes very, very high level of studies by being able to read books on physics and applied mathematics, etc. You know, it's... it's it's a case of there's a lot of educated like doctors, so we've got very popular sort of medical dictionaries and things like that where people might be qualified in their country and hopefully when they get to whichever country they're going to settle in they'll be able to be very, very useful members of, the, of society. So it's, it's just, you know, people actually preparing for a future or distracting themselves or, or learning a language. It's... The other idea of, of just having a space where people can come, where it's a bit warm and chat to people, like-minded people, we take it for granted. It's, it's a total luxury to be able to sit somewhere warm and dry, upright, not in a tiny little tent on a wet mattress. It's kind of... Uh, luxury is relative. The room is full of people reading all sorts. I can see someone reading in Arabic and another reading Arabic poetry people reading dictionaries and picture books. Can you describe a little bit what you've got here in the library and how it's useful, what people are really drawn to? Probably the, the, the shelves at the back, which are full of dictionaries of as many languages as we can find, are probably the most useful because it's even if people are not necessarily wanting to translate it might just be communicating with someone else sitting at the table next to them coming from a different a different country and trying to explain something so it's really nice for kind of the inter-community mix of people we get in here we're really interested in in, in other people's stories what they're doing so the dictionaries are really handy so yeah so we've got um, a real variety of novels and and then we've got quite a selection of We've got books about how to start your own business, which have been, in fact, quite useful, and uh, actually people who have taken them, and you, know, you see them with their own business, so it's, it's quite, uh, quite funny to see where that leads. We've got books about different countries and, and the situation. A lad was reading about the history of Ethiopia. He's probably from Ethiopia. It's probably interesting for him to read it from an outside view of, of the history of his country. You know, it's, it's uh, completely varied. Then if you go around, we've got quite a lot of academic books. There have been some universities that have donated us a really nice selection of academic books. Um, we've got the guide to CV in French. If somebody wants to write their CV, we've got guides for writing in, in uh, CVs in English. And then we've got language learning books. Most of those are now in the language learning space, but we've got a lot of language learning books, which are really, obviously, very useful. Well, and then a lot of graded readers, which are perfect because people can then choose the level of language to suit them and then just a big selection of, of, uh, of classics and, and novels that they can select from and quite a lot of children's books in fact a lot of children's books <laughs> Looking around, particularly at the fiction area I can see Ruth Rendell Adrian Mole Bill Bryson, Dan Brown Are these names that people know already are you finding or is this all a completely new um, literary people world? Know, people know Dan Brown, they know Stephen King and then more the classic, John le Carre obviously uh, Agatha Christie uh, but not necessarily the authors that we uh, might be very familiar with at home Have you had specific requests of books? I have had specific requests of books uh, the last one that somebody asked me to get specifically was about some Russian general in like the 1890s or something. <laughs> so, uh, so it was very happy with it when I, when I ordered it from Amazon. And, uh, but anyway, so. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really specific. <laughs> uh, exactly. So, and we, we, we have got um, 
an Amazon wish list, which is not really up and running, but hopefully now we've got Wi-Fi, that would be something that readers, the members of the library, can actually, when they really want a book, will hopefully be able to go on there and actually request a book that they really want, rather than depending on the goodwill and the shelf-clearing of uh, <laughs> the good people of, of Calais or, or England. I know that people have been very generous donating books. Are there particular books that are particularly useful um, and that you need here? Dictionaries are always, always useful because it's really nice that people can go away with a dictionary and it can be their, you know, especially pocket-sized one, in their pocket, wherever they end up, whichever country they go to, they've got their pocket dictionary and, and that's always useful. Obviously, in the languages of the camp, for example, Amharic and, and Kurdish as two Kurdish languages, I wouldn't be able to quote them, but, you know, sort of languages where there's a lot of people in the camp, Farsi dictionaries, Dari dictionaries, and also things like we had, you know, like um, a picture dictionaries in French, English and Arabic, and things like that are incredibly useful. Any reading books in any of the languages that people have come from, it's nice so that people are able to read for pleasure rather than sort of maybe struggling through a language that they're not as fluent in, so... There are various different entities here at the camp. Church, theatre, there are now shops and, and restaurants even. Do people find this a special place? I think a lot of people do. And for me, it's maybe what's nice about it is maybe a bit of calm in the chaos. Sometimes I think people just need somewhere quiet and where, you know, it's sometimes quiet is, uh, is nice. <laughs> Well, aside from the churning generator in the background, it, it, is, it is a real place of community and calm, it feels, at the moment. Yeah, well, thank God there is a churning generator, because <laughs> that's one of the... If you'd have come here on any other day of the week, you might have found a non-churning generator, pitch black, uh, no light, so, you know, thank God it's churning. <laughs> that was Susanna Tresillian speaking with Mary Jones. We'll be hearing more from The Jungle on the podcast shortly in a Calais special including an exclusive interview with Masha Alikina of Pussy Riot. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian. Tom Holland is a historian best known for his studies of the ancient world. His most recent, Dynasty, The Rise and Fall of the House of Caesar, was published last autumn but he's also chair of the PLR Advisory Committee. He joined Claire to explain what that is. This is the week in the year when the library borrowing figures are revealed. And I have with me in the studio Tom Holland, who is chair of the PLR Advisory Committee. Tell me what that is. PLR stands for Public Lending Right, and it was brought in in 1979 to pay authors when their books got borrowed from the library. So the current rate this year is you get 7.67 pence for every book that gets borrowed and it goes up to a threshold of around £6,500. And what's been innovative this year is that audiobooks have been added to that. So it's now books and audiobooks are bundled together. Why add audiobooks? Because they're an increasingly popular format and it seems unfair that authors should not be remunerated for that and also that um, narrators shouldn't be. So narrators also, they get 20% of every audiobook that gets borrowed. We'll burrow down a little bit into the specific groups, but let's just go for the top line figures. Absolutely, man of the year is James Patterson, as he has been for several years. Yes, he dominates it. He's, he's not only the most borrowed author, but he has the most titles in the top 100 most borrowed ten, books. Ten books in yes. this. Yes. That's yes. quite staggering, yes. isn't it? And Lee Child comes in with number one and number two in the top ten most borrowed titles. So it seems that the way to be popular with British library goers is to uh, write about <laughs> American crime. Seems the way ahead. Um, and that you've got what you call the millionaires, although, as we said, they're not, this is not millionaires in earnings terms since they're capped at £6,500, but they're the, author, the four authors who have 
clocked up more than a million sales. James Patterson, Julia Donaldson, Daisy Meadows and Francesca Simon, three of the four are children's writers. Yes. They're very young children. Yes, and I think that at a time of some pessimism about the future of libraries, you know, cuts are coming in and there has been a decline in borrowing rates. The fact that children's authors are so strongly represented across the board in every kind of league table is incredibly encouraging because what that suggests is that people are taking their children there, that children want to go to libraries and that the habit not just of reading but of borrowing books from libraries is being instilled in a new generation. So I think that that gives tremendous hope for the future of the library service in this country and for the future of reading in this country. Now you're being very cheerful Tom but there is another story isn't there? In December we reported that visits to Britain's libraries had fallen by 14% since this government had come in and the um, library funding over a corresponding period had dropped by 16%. Yes. So so these figures although they seem very very sort of chipper they're actually down generally are they? Figures are down and um, as you will well know the library service has been in a degree of crisis, uh, austerity is kicking in, but every cloud has a silver lining. I think that these figures are a cause for optimism because ultimately the future of the library service will depend not just on the level of government funding, but on the willingness of, and enthusiasm of people to use them. And what this suggests is that children in particular really value what libraries offer. Now, you're a historian. Um, your most recent book was about the Caesars. You're not featured. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're no, not very borrowed, I, are you? No, but I think that may be because I'm not writing about American crime or fairies or monsters or anything like that. There is absolutely a sense, I think, I mean, particularly if you look at the figures for audiobooks, which, as I said, have come out for the first time this year. Five of them are children's books. Five of them are thrillers. So and I think that that pretty much sums up what you have to do if you want to feature prominently on this list. Write a thriller or write a children's book. And I should add that, astonishingly, J.K. Rowling is on there twice in both categories. So there are two Harry Potters and there are two of her adult thrillers on it, which is an astonishing achievement. So number two is The Philosopher's Stone, which is his, her very first Harry Potter book. A very old book. I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? That actually libraries is where backlist goes yes. To live on. Yes, and also, but you'll notice also that um, it's read by Stephen Fry. So not only are you getting J.K. Rowling, you're also getting Stephen Fry, and that is obviously a very attractive package. And it's the kind of package that people will want to just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing, I think. And then we go to biography. The biography is there's something I've been dying to tell you, which is by um, Linda Bellingham, who was an actress who died, which was a, a sort of a completely unexpected hit in the bookshops as well as in the libraries. Yes, and there is clearly an element of tragedy to that. And I think in that context, if we look back over the decades to see long-term trends, very striking. The author who's probably had the most loans is Catherine Cookson, whose stories likewise are, are full of misery and, and despair. And so I think that what this suggests is that there is a huge appetite among people who use libraries for that kind of narrative, that kind of story. Now, moving on to most borrowed religion and beliefs book is The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, which one might say is not about religion and belief at all. In fact, oh, it's, I think, the I mean, it's, Well, it's very much about belief because it's saying that you shouldn't believe. I'm sure Richard Dawkins will be thrilled. And again, it sheds a light on trends that are certainly going on where there is a decline in belief in organised religion and that people who don't identify with given religious traditions are absolutely on the rise. So I think you can see that echoed in, in that particular statistic. And there's an element of, of aspiration in this reading as well, particularly when you come to Most Borrowed Astronomy, Space and Time book is A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. Now, I wonder how many of the people in the history of the borrowing of this book have actually finished it? Or stolen it. Or I, stolen it. <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, I imagine that if you write a book that you feel you ought to read that nobody then reads, that's pretty good if you've got a book in the library because it just means you've got to keep checking it out and out. But again, that's a hardy perennial. I mean, that's written decades ago and still going strong. So it does show that there are these slow burns. I mean, the other classic, the person who, who keeps on being borrowed is Roald Dahl, which again is telling us something about the saliency and the prominence that children writers have in these figures. So most borrowed classic authors are one Roald Dahl, two Enid Blyton, yep. three Agatha Christie, and four Beatrix Potter. So, uh, you know, again... So again, three children's, children's books and a thriller, a detective story. So the picture 
we're getting is that libraries are really, really important for children. It's parents who are borrowing things rather than buying books. Maybe, you know, this, the argument that actually books are so cheap now that you no longer need libraries doesn't actually pertain when you've got lots of children. Uh, yes, I'm sure that's true, that parents are taking children in. But I think also, if I, you know, I look back and remember my own childhood, once you get in the habit as a child of going to the library and discovering the riches that are on offer, then you start badgering your parents to take you there. Or, you, you know, as you get older, you start to go yourself. And I can vividly remember with absolute primary colours almost every display that there was in the children's section of the Salisbury Library, which is where I always went. There was a librarian who I can remember called Miss Joy, and she did indeed bring joy. And I can remember taking books out on dinosaurs. I can remember taking Asterix books out. I can remember all my interests and passions being fueled by the books that were available there. And I certainly did not need to be taken there by my parents. And I'm, I'm sure there must be many children who are like I was when I was a child. The thing that every year when we do this, I always wrestle with myself over is what it says about us as readers. We actually follow where the market ideas take us, don't we? we? We're reading the things that publishers are pumping out with million pound sales and advertising on the tube and there's actually not much hinterland in the top 100. I think that it reflects what publishers also know, which is that tastes are very much dominated by thriller elements, essentially. Detective stories are hugely popular in libraries, in bookshops, as they are on television and as they are in cinema. And it's just, if you want to have a really highly borrowed book, write a thriller. Does it matter what we read, do you think? Or does it, is it just anything goes? It's just as valuable to read a Lee Child thriller as it is to read a Ian McEwan novel. I think that the habit of reading is so important in all kinds of reasons that ultimately, as long as people are going in there and taking out books, that is the thing to trumpet. And of course, the role that libraries play, that a Lee Child may well be a gateway drug to an Ian McEwan, if you want. I mean, part of the joy of a library is that they are open shelf, that you wander in, that you go along the stacks, that you might find something that you'd never cross your mind. I mean, I, pers I, I remember going when I was very, very skint, living in London for the first time, must have been about 20, 21, um, going to Kensington Library and finding a book left out in the, um, you know, it had just been delivered, so it was about to be restacked, called From Alexander to Actium. And it was a study of the Hellenistic period between classical Greece and the rise of Rome. And I took it back and read it and it completely transformed my life because it made me want to write that kind of ancient history. So I see myself as representative of those people whose lives have been transformed by public libraries, by the books that they offer and by the service that they offer. And so that's why I'm very proud and honoured to be beating the drum for libraries now because they have changed my life. I owe them a huge debt and I'm sure that there are many other people out there who could say the same. And I strongly hope and believe that there are many further generations who will be able to say the same. And I think that these figures imply that. And that is the good news that I would like to trumpet. Of course, libraries are not simply places to store books, but also sources of artistic enterprise. In 2014, the Scottish Book Trust commissioned Jackie Kay to contribute a poem to their Artwork for Libraries campaign. She read us an excerpt. Dear Library, See, when I was wee, my favourite day was Wednesday, Library Day, when Ma and me would go to my library and I would get to pick my book and get it stamped out after the other yin had been stamped in and I hid my very in card, which was a wee magic envelope that took me to another world altogether full of characters and creatures, antelopes, big brune bears, loins and tigers, new words and anything and often I wants to ken about the moon, stars, sea, the hail, galaxy, the wild world was at the tip o' my fingers in my local library. Always a new book to wolf down in the dead of night, a borrowed book to read by torchlight. In the morning, last night saved page turns to who last had this book out and the date returned, 9th June this year. This same book in a stranger's hands half known, those readers, kindred spirits, 
almost friends. You're in transition. You're on the threshold. The library is the place that gets you pure gold. You're holding, you're Lyra, you're White Fang, you're kidnapped, you're Skellig, you're refugee boy, you're Callum, a knot, you're Catch-22, you're Chris Guthrie, you're Hyde, you're Boo Radley. It's not accidental. You are those books. Those books are you. Inside your mind, you're strong, safe. Toss a coin, heads, reader, tails, writer. The library is a young writer's first home. You read pertinent sayings, make your own. The cool teenager is a member of the library. Dear library, you want to say, dear library, you've served me well all my life. You're a magnificence, munificence. You're a book festival every day. There is no way me, an OAP, could ever value what you've given me by money. There's no measure for the enriching of the mind, friend. Faithful and trusty, dear library, you're a heart stopper, a kind giver. I treasure your lively silence, your very pleasant librarians. They represent what a public service is truly libertarian. Impossible. Did I say that already? To put a price on that. Again, stop me if I'm repeating myself. Your staff will tell me of a Saramago street in a nearby town. Browse, borrow, request, renew. Lovely words to me. A library in your hand is your democracy. If you were to shut, dear library, it would break my heart. A library user all my life. I'd be lost without my library. A closed library could only welcome a closed mind. Is it a kind of place that you can find in your local library? I want to say, and I do, I pick up my pen and write to you. And that's all for this week. If you feel inspired by this podcast to do your bit for libraries and you live near London, you can join a rally and lobby Parliament on Tuesday, February the 9th. You can find more details by searching for Speak Up for Libraries. If you have any thoughts on this or anything else raised by our books podcasts, do let us know. But for now, thanks to Ali Smith, Tom Holland, Jackie Kay, Mary Jones, staff and readers at Jungle Books. From me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, goodbye. That's wonderful, that's wonderful, that's wonderful Good luck, my baby For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio